This is The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about all things media. I'm Pete Vernon. Two topics for you today. Later, I'll be joined by my colleague Alex Neeson to dive into the controversy surrounding a Washington Post feature that has been criticized for racial insensitivity. But first... We sent a call out to other newspapers and media outlets around the country and we were really amazed with the response. At first it was a couple that came through and then um, over 350 news outlets, small newspapers, large newspapers, different online outlets and um, from red states and blue states there's just this incredible outpouring of people who felt the same way we did where in their own words that it was time to remind people of what the role of the press is. Well, it's a shame that... That was Boston Globe Managing Director Linda Henry talking about a phenomenon that you would probably observe if you walked into a newsstand or, more realistically, went to the homepage of a newspaper on Thursday. We've seen over 350 newspapers publish editorials defending the press and criticizing President Trump's attacks on journalism. It seems like the sort of thing that would be right up Sejera's alley, but if you go to our website, a great website you should definitely check out, Today, you won't see our editor-in-chief, Kyle Pope, pontificating about the implications of Trump's broadsides or the value of the free press. So, Kyle, why is that? I was busy. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't think this kind of concerted effort is, is necessarily a terrible thing, but nor do I really think it's going to move the deedle. I think there is a danger that it comes across as reporters whining about journalism or about attacks on journalism. Um, and I'm not really sure that, you know, if the goal is to convince people who aren't now convinced that protecting the free press is important, um, as opposed to all the rest of us who already think that, I'm not sure it's going to accomplish that. And I, I think that one of the things that we've suffered from as, in, as a profession is is a lot of navel gazing and you know just a sense that like whatever we're suffering through is unique. I mean, w- guess what? People are laying us laying people off in journalism, and that's terrible. Or our wages are going down, and that's awful. And it turns out that that's happening to a lot of people in America. And I don't think what's, that the fact that it's happening to us is that much worse. So I, I don't think I don't think it's a bad thing that this is happening. I didn't I didn't sort of seek out involvement for CJR because I just. I'm not sure it's the message that's really going to resonate. Some people, notably Jack Schaefer at Politico, have said, not only will this not move the needle, it's actually counterproductive. This is going to play into Trump's hands because he's going to now be able to say, look, there is, as he tweeted earlier, collusion in the media against me, against the person that you, my people, elected. Uh, And this is why I call the press the enemy of the American people, because they're telling you that... They're against me, and therefore they're against you. Yeah, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't lukewarm about it because I was worried about what Trump might say because, and, and, and let's be honest, if anybody knows collusion, it, it's, it's the president. <laughs> um, but, but more just that I, I thought, I, and, and I thought his, his response was entirely predictable. I mean, we, you could almost set your watch by his tweet in response to it. I'm more thinking about people in, in the rest of the country who are dubious about what the press does or or think that, I mean, if you go into this thinking the press is basically a bunch of self-involved people who whine a lot about stuff and seem to be more 
focused on themselves than on anybody else. This just feeds into that narrative. And what I've thought is, and you know, some of the people who have, because I, I tweeted a bit about this today, and, and some of the response has been like, yeah, you've got a point, but why can't we do both, which is fine. Um, I think we really got to focus on not so much on why attacks on journalism is important or even why journalism is important, but focus more on the effects of what we do. So like, I, I'm not convinced that people care that much about journalism jobs, but what I know that they care about, and I've said this before, but you know, is, is there a gym teacher in your community that's abusing kids? That's an important story that, that you care about. Is there a chemical plant that's dumping water in your river? That's a story that you care about. Is there a city manager at your town that's siphoning money off that should be going to city services? That's something you care about. That's all journalism. That is stuff that, and I think that that is a story that people across the political spectrum can get engaged with and can support much more so than like, oh, somebody's calling us names and you should be, you should be angry. Let me take a little bit of the opposite position about today because I read through more of these editorials than I probably should have. And the least effective were the ones that said, the free press is important, what Trump's doing is bad, we are the, the sword in the night that guards the realm of men, or mm -hmm. whatever. But uh, for an example, the, the Tampa Bay Times used their editorial to say, the president talks about fake news. Uh, that's bad because there are reporters all around the country doing real news. Here in Florida, here is some real news. And they bullet pointed stories that they had. They said, it was real news when the Times revealed that the city of St. Petersburg released hundreds of millions of gallons of partially treated sewage. And they go on. It was real news when we reported this. It was and that sort of reminding sounds like it's what you're talking about. Yeah. Right? Saying, in your community, here's what we've been doing. So most reporters are not focused on the White House, right? Yeah. Even though if you watch CNN and Fox and MSNBC, it seems that way. I guess my question is, how do news outlets push back and speak to those people who might not be convinced that what Trump's saying is completely wrong, who might have frustrations with the self-involvement and kind of sanctimonious tone of reporters? Yeah, I mean, I, and, I, and I take your point that there are some people who did take this approach today. Most didn't. I mean, my hometown newspaper um, didn't, the New York Times. Um, it focused more on the on the overall sort of message, which was we're banding together, um, and we have an important message that the American people need to understand. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think it's that kind of of storytelling about what we do and the impact of what we do that we need to do a lot more of. I mean, I'm, I, I and I think it, I think it requires a change of mindset for news organizations. I mean, I, I do think that. There has been, until fairly recently, there's a, there, there has been underlying what we do a sort of certain arrogance, right? We're protected by the First Amendment. We do important work. That's sort of a given. You should support us. And then later we'll tell you about the work that we did. We sort of need to flip that equation. Say, here's the work that we do. It's really important. It's important about how you live your life, how your kids live their lives, how, how your neighbors live their lives. And by the way, we're doing it under the under the sort of umbrella of the First Amendment, and that's important. But that almost has to be secondary to these these individual local stories that we're telling. So does that mean that more outlets need to individually toot their own horns and say, hey, here's what we've done? Because doesn't that get into the same, like, look at us again yeah. thing? 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's sort of like you, you can really get into this debate when you start thinking about like democracy dies in darkness, <laughs> um, which is the, an example of this problem, right? right? I mean, you know, maybe it would be better for them to say like, you know, the city manager went to jail, then democracy dies in, di in darkness. Um, I, I, I do think that, you know, in general, and this is something we, we talk about at CJR, how, how do we convey the impact of what we do? How do we convey that what we write about changes the way people live? And it's particularly hard for us because we're very meta. We write about what media does. Um, but it, it, it doesn't have to be so hard for especially local news outlets. And I just think that we need to be much more aggressive about telling our own story on, on this sort of individual story level and not so much on the big philosophical level. Look, and I'll, I'll, you know, I have to caveat all of this to, to say that I do think that there are some really big, important issues that are in play right now, having, even having to do with the fragility of the First Amendment which is obviously one of the founding documents of our country. And I think it's under threat. And I think that story needs to be told, but, it, but I don't think this is the right venue for it. Yeah, I wonder how much efforts like these, for us and for just people around the industry, draw our attention away from what is really a bigger challenge to journalism, one that we've written about, certainly. Um, but it's that the financial foundation of this industry is under threat. And Dean Bacay said that uh, a few months ago at uh, conf one of the many conferences he goes to that, look, what Trump's doing is not the biggest threat to journalism. It's what's going on at the time at the Denver Post or any other newspaper or local news outlet owned by hedge funds or just bad corporate overlords. Right. We have to be concerned about the fact that for a lot of places, readership is going down and viewership is going down at a lot of places, and why that is. I mean, if we were a, um, a dry cleaner, we, we would want to focus on, like, here's why you should come to this dry cleaner. Because, and it's not because dry cleaning is good and having clean clothes is, is good for America. <laughs> Although it probably it is. It probably is. Yeah. There's probably a good argument for that. But we, we say, like, look, you know, it's cheaper or or we're going to do it quicker, or we're going to do it in a way that is environmentally friendly, or whatever it is that you're arguing. But it, you're, you're really arguing about the benefits about what, of what we do. And this is something we've, I think, as, as media and organizations and as, journal, as players in journalism, we've sort of shied away from. Yeah, that's fair. I, I do think it can be tough to make that case in a way that, again, doesn't come off as somewhat insular, somewhat inward-looking or navel-gazing or whatever you want to uh, call it. A different approach to this whole day of, I don't know what you would call it, resistance, unity, solidarity, came from James Risen at The Intercept, who, uh, of course, was a former New York Times national security reporter. He says that today didn't go far enough, that the press needs to, if it's going to band together, think about what it's doing as a crusade, and specifically a crusade against Trump. I think some of the analogies he used, there's a lot of talk about Germany in the pre-World War II era and newspapers waiting too long to take a stand might be hyperbolic, uh, might at least turn off some people who recoil at those sort of comparisons. But it was an interesting argument. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I was uncomfortable with this idea of crusade too. I thought his, the best part of that about that piece was the very last line um, in which he basically calls on news organizations sort of to come together, if we're going to come together, let's come together and do some work. Let's come together and, let, what does he call it? I don't have it in front of me, but 
a Trump project. A Trump it. project. Uh, I think that is an amazing idea. And I, again, I wouldn't phrase it as like, oh, we're going we're gonna to do something and bring somebody down. But like, what's a reporting project that we can all work on as opposed to a bunch of op-eds about why we like the First Amendment? But you know, what is something that we can, we can have as a joint sort of investigative project that will matter to people? I think that's a great idea. Yeah, there's plenty of unanswered questions about finances and charity and just the various figures floating around Trump that if you put David Fahrenholt and Andrew Kaczynski and Maggie Haberman and any number of these reporters together, I, I would imagine there'd be some public good in the interest of transparency there. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. And I think one of the things that's interesting about reporters like Fahrenholt is he's, a base, he's essentially done a version of this. I mean, remember when he was reporting a year ago or so, he was very transparent about he, he, would, he would post on Twitter sort of findings of his reporting as it went along and before the story ran and basically calling other people like, hey, does anybody have any, anybody know anything about this? And it's sort of a miniature version of what Ryzen is calling for. I think it's an interesting idea. Shifting gears from the broad national scene to focus on one outlet, a couple of weeks ago, the Washington Post published a feature replete with beautiful images telling the story of Heaven Engel and Vincent Heim, both 20-something factory workers at a chicken factory in Fredericksburg, Pennsylvania. Engel and Heim are white, and nearly all of their colleagues at the factory are Hispanic. The story depicts the isolation, sorrow, and frustration that Engel and Heim feel navigating these cultural barriers at work. And at moments, it depicts their prejudice without any sort of challenge. So the Post received a lot of pushback immediately on the story. My colleague Alex Neeson dove into that controversy for a piece up now at CGR.org. Alex, first, good to have you back. Thanks for having me. What were the general criticisms this piece received? So most of the criticism... Um, was around the framing of the story. It wasn't that people thought the story shouldn't have been written. Nobody suggested that um, we shouldn't send reporters to talk to white people about how they're experiencing these changes. People were concerned primarily that there were no quotes offered in the story at all from any of the Latino co-workers. The story is almost 4,000 words long and Engel and Heim are given adequate space throughout to express their feelings of frustration and alienation and in some instances offer a look at their own xenophobia and the Latino co-workers are mentioned only in passing and never given a chance to respond. Folks were concerned that some of the language used in the piece echoed anti-immigrant sentiment essentially and they were concerned that it could be used to kind of stoke fears around the browning of uh, the American population in a way that's felt really inappropriate to a lot of people. Yeah, there was this one scene when I read this as kind of the controversy was bubbling across social media, this one scene where Heaven Engel, the 20-year-old main character, is sort of being depicted as pushed up against a wall as the room slowly fills with her Hispanic co-workers. And it just creates this weird sort of dynamic that does seem to feed into that narrative of fear. Yeah, that scene in particular evoked a kind of physical threat as though she were being physically threatened when in fact she was standing in a hallway that was filling up with her coworkers as they w waited to start their shift. And so some of it was just an, an awkward telling of, of what happened uh, that could be easily used to kind of parrot these, the stereotype of like the big scary immigrant. 
And as we mentioned, there was a lot of pushback initially. How did the Post respond, either the writer Terrence McCoy or Marty Barron, the editor-in-chief? What sort of credence did they give to these criticisms? So folks reached out in a couple of different ways. Um, Latino Rebels, a commentary site, wrote a piece uh, offering their critique uh, of the story, and later Terrence McCoy went on WBUR and talked about them. Uh, Marty Barron and the Washington Post released a statement And by and large, they dismissed the criticism and said, we hear you, but you're misreading the piece. This was intended to be narrowly focused on the very specific experience of these two white workers in the mostly Latino factory. And all we did was write how they feel. And and so from their perspective, they didn't uh, see the piece as aiding in any anti-immigrant sentiment or parroting stereotypes or anything like that. Yeah, I saw in your piece, you mentioned that Barron's argument was this was a piece that was edited by a person of color. It was seen by several other people of color in our newsroom, and we have one of the most diverse newsrooms in the country, so take your criticism elsewhere. Yeah, they, they definitely propped up that the Post has does have a diverse newsroom as sort of um, a way to say, hey, we did our job, and we had a person of color look at this story, and and, and so we're standing by it. I guess part of Barron's point is that, look, we have to report on Trump voters at times. We have to report on white people in small towns and rural areas that are the typical Trump voter. We've certainly criticized other pieces, some in the Post and and many elsewhere, for these sort of check-ins with Trumplandia. Um, This piece seemed intended to approach those questions from a different way, to say, forget the politics and what people think of Trump's tweets. Let's look at the lives of Trump voters, Fredericksburg's described as 95% white with Trump signs and Confederate flags in Pennsylvania uh, up all over. So is the intention here okay? Is that something that, that you found people criticizing and the execution was bad or was there something flawed in the intention from the beginning? This is definitely a problem of execution. I think that on the whole, we understand that we have to talk to these people and uh, that particularly during the election season, we weren't talking to them and, and we and that was a mistake. And so I don't think that anyone has argued that the story should not have been written at all. But I think that what, pe- what folks are upset about is that it doesn't seem like they've considered what the potential impact was of excluding the voices of, la- of, the la- of not just the Latino coworkers, but also of management, for example. The story doesn't talk, doesn't quote anybody um, who works in management at the chicken plant, and it's their ultimately their responsibility to make sure that people, including Engelheim, feel comfortable at work. And I think the problem is not that a reporter showed up in Fredericksburg and said, let's talk to folks and see how they feel about the way that their workplace is changing. I think the problem was that you allow them space to express what are ultimately uh, feelings of prejudice sort of built into these feelings of anxiety and and alienation, and you offer no challenge. And and it's not the reporter's job to convince the subjects of a story um, that the way that they're feeling is prejudice, but it is the reporter's job to zoom out and offer some context and give people a chance to respond. And so I think that folks thought that uh, Terrence McCoy should have talked to, or at least should have quoted in the story, He perhaps he spoke to them, um, but should have quoted some of these other workers, particularly in the areas where uh, the prejudice of Engel and Heim was most overt, because it was overt in some spots. Yeah, th- this piece brought back a question that we talked about even before the election of, Just how do you, as a reporter from 
say the Washington Post or the New York Times or any big national outlet, go to areas of the country that apparently were undercovered during the campaign, right? We, we keep hearing about, well, we missed the 2016 election. We have to find a way to speak to those people, to tell our readers about those people, hopefully to make some of those people our readers. There were flaws in this story, right? I think we both agree that the execution here was off. But I do wonder, like, is there a way to write a piece about Trump voters that isn't going to be immediately torn to shreds by the sort of people that we uh, spend a lot of time digitally hanging out with on TweetDeck? Yeah, I mean, I think any story that like delves into this area is probably going to attract criticism. That's not always necessarily a bad thing, though. Nothing that we do is perfect. And criticism, when it's constructive, helps us do better the next time. For this story in particular, I don't understand how including uh, voices from management, including voices from the Latino workers, including in more detail what their experience is outside of the chicken plant. Because in the chicken plant, it's majority Latino, but in the town where the chicken plant is at, it's not. And we don't get any picture aside from, you know, an image of Trump signs and Confederate flags of what their experience might be like outside of the plant. I don't see how including that stuff would have made the story worse. It would have made the story better and served to help if the point was for us to hear and understand the experience of these two white workers, um, I think that it would have only helped further that. It would have only helped make the point that he mentions in passing, which is that they're now experiencing something that their Latino co-workers have experienced probably for their entire lives. You quote in the piece Hugo Balta, who is an ESPN uh, executive and director of multicultural initiatives and also a member of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. And he called Marty Baron and talked to him about this piece, expressed those concerns, got sort of the same pushback from Barron that we saw in the statement. Um, what does he want to happen going forward? Like, what's his goal in trying to have this constructive criticism uh, with the Post and its leaders? Yeah, I think Balta and, and NAHJ and many of the other critics who've been outspoken, I think that ultimately what he wants is for folks to wrap their head around the reality that because you do not intend for a piece to do something does not absolve you of responsibility when it does that thing. Nobody, you know, Terrence McCoy didn't show up in Fredericksburg intending to do what his critics say, uh, which was to kind of stoke anti-immigrant sentiment or write unfairly about the Latino people there. But if that's what happened, then I think we, then we owe it to, uh, the profession really to own that and to like really carefully look at how do I do better next time? How do I do everything that I can to make sure that I'm being fair, that I'm offering readers a complete story? And in this case, the choice to narrow the focus in the way that it did seems to have been the wrong one. Yeah, the road to hell paved with good intentions and all of that, right? But anytime you're falling back on a, well, you misread the piece argument to what amounted to a pretty wide swath of readers, I think you've done something wrong, again, if not in the intention, then at least in the execution. Yeah, totally. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us. Thanks to my boss, Kyle Pope, and my colleague, Alex Neeson, for being here to talk about the news of the day. Please check out all the great work we've got up at cjr.org, and we'll see you next week.